Good evening. It's, uh, it's, it's fantastic to see so many of you uh, here. Um, so uh, welcome to uh, the LSE for this evening's uh, event. Uh, my name is uh, Giles Atkinson. Uh, I'm Professor of Environmental Policy in the Department of Geography and Environment at the, uh, at the LSE. Um, I'm also pleased to uh, welcome a number of guests. I'll be chairing uh, tonight's uh, event, but let me just introduce you firstly to our guests who, that comprise our uh, discussion uh, panel. Uh, we have uh, in the, the middle uh, Susanna Morato, uh, who is Professor of Environmental Economics in LSE's Department of Geography and Environment, and currently also our Head of Department. We have uh, Ben Groom seated uh, to uh, her right, uh, but your left, um, who is Professor of Environmental and Development Economics uh, and also in the Department of Geography uh, and uh, Environment. Uh, we have uh, Joseph Lowe, uh, Head of Economics uh, in the Public Spending Group uh, in Her Majesty's uh, Treasury. Uh, we have uh, Tanya Vettingfield, uh, who is uh, the Economic Advisor on Smart uh, Energy for the Department of Business, uh, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Uh, and uh, Tanya is also, uh, we're very proud to, uh, to say, is a graduate of our Masters in Environmental Economics and Climate Change. Uh, and lastly, but not least, we have uh, Niels Axel Braffen that's uh, kindly joined us uh, from, uh, from, from Paris uh, today. Uh, and he is a Principal Administrator in the Environmental Performance and Information Division at, uh, in the Environmental Directorate at OECD. Now, I should say our external uh, speakers, uh, although I've, I've mentioned their affiliations, they'll be talking tonight in a, in, in a personal uh, capacity. So to please uh, bear, that, uh, bear that in mind. Uh, the subject of uh, tonight's uh, event is... Um, Cost-benefit analysis uh, and the cost-benefit analysis and the uh, and the environment. Uh, this marks the publication uh, by OECD in the uh, in the summer of a book volume uh, of this uh, same title uh, that was co-authored by Susanna. Uh, ben, Niels Axel, uh, and myself. Uh, and this is a, a major update of a, a 2006 uh, volume that Susanna and I worked with, uh, with the late Professor uh, David Pierce. And I should mention uh, David uh, now because we owe him uh, still uh, a great debt in this current uh, volume. Now, David, uh, many of you may know him uh, in the audience, was a, was a staunch champion of the idea that a crucial ingredient of making environmental decisions was knowing something about the, uh, the costs and the benefits of those, uh, of those actions for, uh, for public, uh, public policy. Um, an example of uh, cost-benefit analysis uh, or CBA of the environment is given on the, uh, the right-hand side of this, uh, of this slide. Now, many of us who work or live locally uh, may have encountered this project along the, uh, the embankment of the, the River Thames. So this is the building of the, uh, the Thames Tideway, or the London Super Sewer, as it's sometimes, sometimes called. So this is an upgrade of London's uh, sewer system to tackle the problem of overflows uh, into the, uh, the River Thames and all that, uh, that entails. Now, actually, some of you in the room tonight, you may have actually been involved uh, with the, uh, the cost-benefit analysis that's been done over the years uh, of, this, uh, of this project, which, as you can see, hopefully on this 
right-hand side of the, uh, of the slide, the latest update shows that the, uh, the benefits of this infrastructure project uh, outweigh even the, uh, the considerable uh, costs of taking that, uh, that action. So what our volume for OECD uh, is essentially about is taking stock of the developments that allow that sort of practical appraisal uh, to take place. So in part, the book is discussing the character of these uh, developments at the knowledge frontier. But the nature of practical use uh, in actual policy uh, applications, at least in some countries, also struck us as being very much a vital part of the story about how environmental cost-benefit analysis has evolved uh, over uh, the past uh, number of years. So we hope to cover both of those themes in tonight's uh, discussion. Let me just uh, say a little bit about the, the running uh, order. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to hand over to uh, Niels Axel, uh, without whom this volume, I should say, uh, wouldn't have uh, happened, so we owe him a, a, a considerable debt of thanks. And he's going to introduce the OECD context for interest in environmental cost-benefit analysis. Then Susanna and uh, Ben will talk a little bit about some of the recent developments that the book uh, reflects uh, upon. And then we'll hand over to Joseph and Tanya that will move our discussion uh, back to the world of uh, practical, uh, practical policy. Uh, just a couple of announcements before we uh, move on. Uh, for those uh, Twitter users uh, in, the, uh, in the audience, let me go back to the first, uh, first slide, as I think it's uh, uh, here. Um, our hashtag uh, for uh, today's event is uh, uh, LSE Environment. Uh, could I ask you all uh, as well to put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the uh, event? This evening's event is also being uh, recorded. Uh, hopefully that will be made uh, available um, with, subject to no technical uh, difficulties with the, uh, with the recording. And lastly, uh, after our speakers finish... There will be a chance for you to put your questions uh, to, the, uh, to the panel. Uh, so can you please join me in welcoming our uh, panel, and I'll hand over to Niels uh, Axel Braffen of the OECD for our, our, first, uh, our first element of the panel discussion. Thank you. So first of all, thanks a lot to Giles uh, for having invited me, and thanks a lot to him, Ben, for the work they did on the book. Um, as uh, Giles has already made reference to, uh, this is an update of a book that was uh, a very significant update of a book that was published in, back in 2006. Um, and that book, even in 2017, was among the 10 most accessed documents of the Environment Directorate of the OECD uh, 11 years after its publication. In the meantime, um, we have tried to think of ways we could help promote more um, use of cost-benefit analysis in, in uh, both member countries and elsewhere. So um, one of the elements we thought could be useful was um, to get a better hand on values of a statistical life, which um, uh, can be a very important factor in many cost-benefit analyses. So we did a meta-analysis of all uh, stated preferences-based uh, 
estimates of values of statistical lives that we found anywhere in the literature. And we published a report on that back in 2012, uh, trying to uh, sort of follow the line and to take a logical next step. We try then to use the, uh, the, the link we found in that meta-analysis between willingness to pay to avoid uh, premature death and um, um, uh, link that to uh, a, a particular application. So we uh, looked at the costs of air pollution and uh, used the estimates um, of the, the link between this willingness and the GDP to develop um, uh, country-specific VSL estimates, and the, we published a book back in 2014 on the cost of air pollution, and the costs went up into the trillions in OECD countries alone. And um, I don't know about you, but for me it was a quite new thing to start using the word trillions. And then... Um, the next logical step for us was that we should see what had happened since 2006. So we uh, then asked uh, Giles and Susanna and later on Ben to take part in this update of the book. And I'm very pleased that already the full book has been accessed at, uh, around 3,000 times. So it looks as if there is quite a great interest in the book. So what is then the current situation? Do countries use cost-benefit analysis? Uh, what we, we, in the book, you can find a chapter that um, presents results from a survey that we did. And it turns out that in the, especially in the transport sector, uh, many of the major projects are subject to cost-benefit analysis. Um, also, in relation to investments in the energy sector, use of cost-benefit analysis is relatively uh, good. And as regards ex-ante assessments of public policies, uh, also a reasonably good use of cost-benefit analysis, whereas we found it was very rare that you had ex-post analysis of, of public policies or investment projects. And, and that was really one of the striking findings of that, the, the survey that we did. So we are trying to do a little bit to address that issue. And so we have now started a program doing uh, ex-post uh, cost-benefit analysis of environmentally related taxes and tax provisions that can have 
environmental impacts like, say, an income tax deduction for uh, purchase of solar panels or whatever. And when we started this project, we found out that there are extremely few assessments of um, such policies, uh, ex post assessments of such policies in, in the literature. We hardly found any. Uh, but now there are, there are at least two available. One that a colleague of mine did on the French so-called bonus malus system, uh, a system that was introduced to promote the sales of uh, vehicles with low CO2 emissions. We found that it actually contributed to this, but it also contributed to uh, an increased share of diesel vehicles in, in the vehicle fleet and the social costs related to the health impacts of the diesel vehicles largely outweigh any reasonable estimate of the, the benefits in relation to, to CO2. And if you also take into account the impacts on the budget, etc., uh, overall this scheme as it was designed in 2008, I should emphasize, that has later been modified, but this scheme clearly was welfare-reducing. And just last Friday, we had a presentation of another similar case study of the changes that have been made in the Irish uh, motor vehicle taxes over the last 10 years with a similar finding. Thank you. That's what I wanted to say. Thank you very much. All right, thank you. Sorry for this uh, delay trying to find the slides. But, um, so one of the most significant contributions of environmental economists to cost-benefit analysis has been the development of non-market valuation techniques. And I'm going to talk about um, those developments because um, those are the chapters that I um, led the writing in the book. So I'm going to be talking about that and highlighting the, the main findings uh, that we uh, have in the book. So um, this is important because cost-benefit analysis involves uh, clearly the comparison of costs and benefits, and that has to um, be done in the same unit, uh, money. But some of these impacts are not readily measured in money terms. Uh, for example, impacts on air pollution. And so we need a range of techniques that allow us to monetize these impacts. And environmental economists uh, led the led the development of some of these, uh, some of these techniques, and uh, most of you will have heard of, about some of them. Um, revealed preference methods uh, mean that we um, go and look at related markets and how people behave in those related markets to infer the value of environmental goods. For example, we will look at house pricing uh, as house markets to try to infer the value of amenities surrounding houses. That's the hedonic price method. Or we will look at how much people spend traveling to recreational sites to value uh, recreational outdoor spaces. That's the travel cost method. But um, not always can we find examples of behavior in uh, these uh, related markets. So sometimes we have to create markets, hypothetical markets via surveys or via labs, and ask people how much they would, um, uh, how they would behave in those hypothetical markets. And those are stated preference methods. 
And the latest method that um, uh, has been developed in environmental economics and uh, related areas has been the subjective well-being valuation method, where we look at happiness data and the impact of policies in happiness, and then we compare that with the estimates of the impact of income on happiness, and through uh, all um, an analysis of that, those data, we are able to come up with an inferred value for environmental changes. So those are the three types of uh, methods that are described in our book. Uh, there are many others uh, that, that are in the book, but these are the three uh, categories. And I'm just going to uh, take you through some of the main developments. Uh, one of the key things is that the three types of methods that I've mentioned are uh, recognized in the UK Treasury's Green Book that Joseph Lowe here uh, led the, 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 the writing and the production of that book. So they are recognized methods to use in policy appraisal in the UK, which is a great supportive um, uh, for the use of, of, of the methods. So what is um, the main findings? Well, the first one is that stated preference techniques and revealed preference techniques are very well-established and mature methods. They are not new methods. They were first um, um, proposed in the 60s, and they um, have since then been applied thousands of times. There are thousands of uh, uh, um, reports, uh, chapters, um, peer-reviewed journal articles, and many, many, many thousands of empirical applications across all the methods. Uh, 80s and 90s uh, was a, an area of expansion for these methods. So we have 30, 40, 50 years of experience of using them. They are not new. We know what, what the problems are. We know when they work. We know when they should be applied. And we know how to design them to minimize biases. So many of the developments that you see in these methods are developments now at the margins because they are well-established and mature methods. There are no big substantial shifts off the frontier anymore with, with these types of methods. It's different for subjective well-being valuation. That's a new method. I will talk about that at the end. Um, still, however, interestingly, there is still a controversy surrounding some of these methods, particularly the survey-based methods, the stated preference methods. And... Um, it tends to be controversy that comes from the U.S., and it tends to be uh, associated with oil spills. So uh, in 1989, when there was the Exxon Valdez oil spill, um, there was a contingent valuation method that established uh, the, the, the amount of damages caused in the $3 billion it was at the time. And the Exxon Corporation didn't like the result and commissioned a large uh, conference and many studies to try to discredit the method. Uh, interestingly, this happened again in 20, um, just last year. So uh, after the BP uh, uh, Deep uh, Water Horizon oil spill, there was a contingent valuation study that was published in Science last year, and they valued the oil spill as um, around 17 billion in damages. And of course, this was immediately followed by a series of uh, studies that have been published as a book last year, commissioned by BP, trying to discredit the method again. So we, the same thing exactly has happened many years later, um, because they just don't like the, 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 the results. And it, of course, these methods have flaws. All methods have flaws. But there's clearly something going on, and these methods are particularly disliked by the big corporations. Uh, the, the, we apply them in Europe in cost-benefit analysis. It's not the same context. It's much, much less controversial, the types of context that we normally apply them in. But it's just an interesting reflection. 
So what's new from these methods that are so mature? When one of the big changes is in the types of data that we now have available. Um, for example, um, for stated preference methods, we have abandoned uh, the idea of doing face-to-face -face sur surveys in many, many cases. The majority of people now do online surveys. They're much quicker, uh, they are much cheaper, most, um, a much more efficient way of gathering information, and we can use lots of sophisticated things like measuring the time that people spend in particular questions, show them videos, uh, target uh, particular respondents with particular types of information. Uh, of course, it has problems as well, but on balance, I would say that it is a good development having these online methods and very cheap ways of uh, gathering information. It really revolutionized the applications. Uh, in other reveal preference methods, we also have uh, new types of uh, data, uh, satellite data, app, uh, data collected by apps, where we have uh, social media data, and we can overlay all this information and get a lot more accurate estimates to our reveal preference methods. So if we have data on house prices in a particular area, we know exactly what the air pollution is in the area, what the level of noise is, the distance to schools, the distance to markets. Uh, it improved a lot the estimates that we produce for markets. From our surveys, so this is from our from our methods. So this is a, bit, a, a, a recent development that we reflect on in the book. Another exciting development is um, behavioral economics and the insights that we learned from behavioral economics. They had perhaps the most uh, influence in non-market valuation research. And I would particularly highlight the Im the, the impacts on stated preference uh, research. Stated preferences, survey-based methods are experimental methods. And when we were doing these methods in the last 20, 30 years, we discovered a lot of anomalies in the ways people behaved in surveys. People um, uh, were, for example, affected by the, t the types of information that they received. And small changes in information led to different uh, outcomes and uh, large changes in willingness to pay. And initially, this was thought to be a problem with the method. The method is flawed. People are not behaving rationally. Recent advances in behavioral economics actually show that it is not the survey that is wrong, is people do not behave rationally all of the time. So people have branded, brand, um, uh, bounded rationality, bounded willpower, bounded self-interest. So the problem is not with the method. The method is just capturing how people behave in real markets. And in real markets, we find these effects as well. We don't call it information bias anymore. We call it priming effects. We call it framing effects. So all these effects we found in hypothetical markets, because hypothetical markets just mimic what there is in real markets. Um, and so this actually helps us improve our methods and design, um, design uh, the surveys in a way that try to avoid some of these, uh, some of these biases. Um, another big development has been um, the development in econometric methods. As you know, we've uh, faced in the last 10 years a big revolution in economics towards a more empirical economics and causal inference, and our methods have not been immune to that. They've changed with the times, and so we now see a lot more uh, focus on experimental settings when we do uh, both stated preference methods and revealed preference methods. We can combine, for example, doing random controlled trials with um, giving out questionnaires and, and, and finding out willingness to pay in the various treatments and combine those, those, the, the, these kinds of settings. In uh, reveal preference methods, for example, in hedonic pricing, we, if we have uh, repeated sales, we can take advantage of quasi-experimental settings. If we have, for example, new wind farms being installed, we can look at house prices before and after the wind farms being installed if we, if we have a panel data of these types of data and uh, find out the, the causal 
impact of these wind farms on house prices, taking advantage of these quasi-experimental and natural settings. So all this has now also permeated into these methods, and we are a lot more uh, concerned about causality and, and identification in the application of these methods. Um, the, the final method that I wanted to talk about is new, uh, newer. It's been developed in the last 10 years, subjective well-being valuation. And our book is actually one of the few books that, uh, perhaps the only book, that uh, talks about this method together with the more established stated preferences and revealed preferences. And, in, f in fact, looking at the downloads and the accessibility of our chapters, this chapter has been looked at twice as, as many times as the other stated preferences and revealed preferences, perhaps because there's more interest, there's less on this, on this method. We don't know so much about it, so what we, as I said before, we look at the impact of policies on well-being, on happiness, and then we looked at the impact of income on happiness, and we compared those effects to try to uh, establish a marginal rate of substitution between income and the environmental effect. Um, you know, it's, it's an indirect valuation. It is useful in many cases. It takes advantage of secondary data, of big data. You don't have to, because uh, happiness data is collected by many governments and many countries at the moment. So there's a lot of data out there that can be used. Um, there's less known about the, when it works and when it doesn't work. The original estimates were not believable, were very high, but a lot of improvements have been made in recent years and the estimates are a lot more believable now. So this is a method that is now part of the Green Book as a method that can be used in certain circumstances to, uh, for, for, for project appraisal. So what, what is a challenge? What, what is there to do? I think, in my view, after 40 or 50 years of application of these methods, we now have to focus our efforts in trying to translate uh, of this empirical record for policy use, making it easy for policymakers to use all these values that have been estimated for so long. And so the, the focus should be on value transfer, transferring the values for policy use through tools that policymakers can use easily. So there's a, there's a focus on lookup tables, maps that you can click and find find out the values of. These things have been developed for outdoor recreation, for woodland, for ecosystem services, and uh, there's a lot of these, um, these types of um, lookup tables and, and value maps being uh, developed for, for policy use. This is what we should be doing. C clearly, there's still space for new studies, of course, but we, we need to start using all the richness of information that we have been collected over the years. And finally, it is important to embed the process of, collecting, uh, the, uh, of, of conducting valuation studies and cost-benefit analysis in the policy process. Uh, it, if it's not uh, within our institutions, if the institutions don't support the use of these techniques, they will not be used. Uh, so that is the next step, is try to embed this more into policy. And there are very good news in, in that as well. Uh, and the Green Book is, is, is excellent news that in the Green Book that uh, determines how uh, policy appraisal should be done in central government, these techniques are uh, recognized and it's, it's suggested that they are used when you need to uh, look at non-market benefits. We've recent, um, uh, Ben, Giles and myself uh, wrote a paper on the applications of uh, these methods to policy. You can read the paper in the Journal of Benefit Cost Analysis um, if you're interested, I don't have time to talk about it more, but I can answer questions uh, about this later. Thank you very much. Thank you. Five minutes. Oh, okay. Thank you. Uh, ben, Ben Groom. Uh, oh, God. So I can just carry on, right? Yes, there we go. Okay, welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming along. Um, 
I, I wrote the chapters on social discounting and on climate, um, the social costs of carbon, on climate change and so forth. And uh, they were updates. The social discounting chapter was a big update. Social cost of carbon was a new chapter in this, in this book. So on social discounting, uh, the discount rate in cost-benefit analysis is super important. It, uh, it uh, allows you to calculate the net present values. High discount rate means you put very low values on, on distant costs and benefits. And so many projects can turn on the value of the discount rate that you choose. Uh, this is all well known, of course. So why do we need another chapter on the social discount rate? Well... Uh, don't worry if you can't read this. This basically, uh, the, there's a timeline there from 1995 until 2017, and the the, uh, the the red flags are sort of policy documents that have been written about social discounting. The blue flags are um, academic pieces of work which have been written on social discounting, and the green dots are sort of policy changes that have taken place in that period of time as a consequence, more or less, of these of these academic works. So the chapter tries to basically uh, tell you about this process that's happened over the past sort of 15 to 20 years. So it's, there's some new stuff in there, basically, as well as the, old, the traditional old stuff. So this is what the chapter really looks like. Um, we start with the kind of typical story about whether to think about social opportunity costs as our, as our measure of the social discount rate, i.e. rates of return, the, the fact that the funds we use for this project could be used and for, to get a rate of return elsewhere, versus social time preference, which is more to do with how we, you and I uh, trade off consumption, what's an acceptable distribution of our consumption over time. So the social opportunity cost of, car, uh, of carbon, social opportunity cost versus social time preference type arguments. And in the USA, the social opportunity cost is 7%. They, they look at corporate rates of return. That's one uh, way in cali to calibrate that. And on the social time preference, they use kind of rates of savings that people, uh, um, that you and I would use, if, uh, would, would receive if we were in the USA. It's about 3%. So that's one way of doing it. You look at the market rates of return and think about how that relates to government expenditures and so on. Uh, and so it's from observed rates of return. Uh, there are other ways of doing it. The UK government takes a slightly, more, slightly different approach, uses a Ramsey rule, focuses in on, the, on the, f um, the social time preference rates, but really tries to calibrate a social welfare function. So on, on the right-hand side there, you'll see that there's uh, two reasons for discounting the future according to this approach. One is that society is a bit impatient. We want our utility now rather than in the future. And the other is that, well, people in the future are going to be richer, so we put less weight on things, on, on extra uh, uh, units, uh, cash that occurs to them, because they're richer and their margin utility is lower. So two reasons, uh, impatience and a wealth effect. And so the, the, the chapter talks about these different rationales for, um, for social discounting. Uh, th there are different ways of sort of calibrating these things, but these, this kind of uh, framework, which is a sort of Ramsey rule framework, uh, is really in a risk-free context, okay? Where, meaning that the project benefits and costs are assumed to be fairly certain. Okay? Now, that's not always the case, of course, and so one of the most important additions to sort of that, that literature was, was, um, was talking about was how to deal with risk in, the social, in terms of the social discount rate. There are two elements here, growth risk, we don't know how rich we're going to be in the future, and project risk, we don't know what the benefits and costs are going to be in the future. Okay, so there are different ways in which we can use the discount rate. Here's the standard risk-free Ramsey rule. 
if we don't know what inco- our incomes are going to be in the future, we might want to subtract a prudence term. This is sort of reflects the fact that if things are inser- uncertain in the future, then we might want to have some precautionary saving and use a lower discount rate. That might be even bigger if you're thinking about catastrophic kind of downturns in the economy, recession, deep recessions, and so on. That effect might be bigger. Um, so that's one thing. And when it comes to project risk, a number of countries use a sort of CAPM type approach, and they have a sort of, in addition to the risk free rate, they add a kind of a risk premium, which reflects the fact that project benefits are uncertain, and some projects. Um, their benefits, their net benefits are positively related to our income. So the, the high payoffs happen precisely when we don't want them to, when we're rich anyway. And the low payoffs happen when we're poor. And projects like that would have an additional, uh, an additional risk premium added to the discount rate. Insurance type projects, which pay off in the bad times, pay off high in the bad times and low in the good times, they have the opposite, a negative beta and a, and a lower discount rate. So there are lots of different rationales which are deployed. Some use the market kind of equity premium approaches. Others use kind of more normative consumption, CAPM type approach where you you look at a systematic risk premium, the correlation with GDP rather than with some market portfolio. So all of these are discussed in the the chapter. The, The other thing that we look at, which is where many of the additions in the in the first diagram that I showed you to do with short and long term issues. Um, many of the projects that governments have to look at these days have very long term consequences. Right? Think about nuclear power, for instance. Think about biodiversity conservation. Think about climate change. These are projects which have uh, payoffs which last for hundreds of years, not just the typical kind of 30, 40 year periods. So then when we start thinking about discounting, it's a bit, a bit different. Uh, there are some different things that come into play. We might think about the usual uh, discount rate in a more normative terms. You know, what's fair for future generations? We're making decisions for them now. Um, and many governments now use a declining discount uh, term structure of discount rates because of um, the... Um, uh, because of uncertainty in the future. That prudence effect, as you look further and further into the future, tends to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and that leads to a declining term structure. So many, many governments do that now. Okay, so the, the rest of the chapter talks about how to estimate these parameters. There's obviously a lot of empirical literature that goes into sort of determining these the, the discount rates. Here's some suggestions on, on all of that. And then we look at examples from existing policy. And lo and behold... Many different countries do very different things. Some use the CAPM, some use consumption CAPM, some use risk-free rates, some use the Ramsey rule. It's, it's very different from one place to the next. So that's basically uh, the overview of that chapter. Now, social cost of carbon chapter, uh, now this is a pretty difficult uh, area to sort of summarize in one chapter, I'd say. And you can tell me whether I've succeeded there. But basically, this is how it goes. We talk about the basic theory of the social cost of carbon, which is how, you know, the price that you add into cost-benefit analysis and take into account the carbon intensity of your project. And um, what it basically means is it's the present value of the damages that an additional unit of carbon uh, will cause over the long term. Because it takes a long time for carbon to dissipate from the atmosphere, and it causes a, a path of damages into the future. So what's the present value of that damage? Well, that's the social cost of carbon. So how do you measure that? It's obviously very difficult. 
we talk about the, the it, it, once you have measured it, it tells you what the optimal tax should be, and we talk about what the, the pathway of optimal taxes should be. That's an interesting story. But the main body of the chapter is about how we estimate, you know, how do we value this social cost of carbon? And there are four things you need to be very careful of when you do this. The first thing is you need to project what the emissions are going to be in the future. And that's a pretty tricky business because you need to deal with technological change and all sorts of things like that. Second thing is once you know the emissions, how does that affect temperatures? And, and these, these, this, uh, these PDFs, these probability distribution functions, tell you something about the sensitivity. If you double carbon in the atmosphere, what is the temperature change that happens? And what this diagram is supposed to tell you is that you know, nobody really knows. Well, they sort of know within some parameters, but it's fairly uncertain, right? So that's pretty difficult. And then in, in the, uh, the process that we explain is using integrated assessment models, and they always have a damage function in there. So what is the damage of a temperature? What is the economic damage of temperature change? Uh, that's another huge area of research which, which is contained in these integrated assessment models. It's very difficult. Here's two examples. Nordhaus, who recently won the Nobel Prize for the DICE model, uh, that's his damage function at the top, the blue one, which shows you how much GDP goes down for different levels of temperature increase. Right? So it's fairly flat. Right? And the one below is Weizmann, who really emphasizes the catastrophic risk. And so this is obviously a huge factor in, in evaluating the social cost of carbon. And there's a great deal of disagreement about that. Okay? And then finally is a discounting story, which of course is very important. And you can see here that if you have a, a discount rate of 2.5%, relatively low, the social cost of carbon is about $130 per tonne of CO2. And if it's 5%, it's only $20, right? Six times, a sixth, right? So the social cost of carbon is very sensitive to some of these assumptions that you make, and, and the chapter tries to sort of bring you on board to tell you what economists have been doing to try and embody the latest knowledge in their economic modelling. So uh, what else is there? Yes, there's some other issues. So uh, these are the other kind of frontier issues about how to deal with catastrophic risk, risk where the top diagram there is like, is like consumption, and that red square is sort of approximating zero consumption. And in economists' minds, that, that's a catastrophe, right? That's what they mean by a catastrophe. So what happens when you get into that catastrophic zone there? Well, uh, sometimes cost-benefit analysis fails because uh, you end up having infinite values of avoiding that, um, that catastrophe. That's the dismal theorem of Weizmann. Um, and... That's problematic. Anyway, so the, the chapter tells you how that can be avoided. It's not, maybe not such a big crisis. Then you think about Bob Pendyke, who just thinks that all integrated assessment models are just made up, and so they shouldn't be used to inform policy at all. And he, he does expert elicitation, and the diagram on the right there is some expert elicitation of what the damages will be in terms of GDP. Not using an integrated assessment model, just asking an ex expert and then coming up with some number, right? using their expert knowledge. And then finally, some uh, proposals, and some countries, in fact, use just simplified analytical expressions for the social cost of carbon, which make it very transparent. The thing with integrated assessment models is you don't really know what's going on inside, but these equations have parameters which you can estimate. It's very transparent how you're doing this. So there are different arguments. We cover those in all of the, in, in the chapter, and we cover international experience as well. Here's the US. They, have a, they had, I should say, um, uh, a sort of a prescription on the social cost of carbon. That's all disappeared now for some reason, um, which we won't go into. Uh, and this is the UK. The UK just says, look, 
we, we're not going to get involved in the social cost of carbon. We have a target. What does it cost to meet that in terms of abatement? So they use an abatement cost approach in this country because we have a legally defined target. So they circumvent a lot of this in there. So these are the kind of things that we talk about, and it shows how we economists have tried to embody climate change in the day-to-day of cost-benefit analysis in, the, in various countries. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we've made you uh, talk about discounting for just a few minutes, but I should say Ben will be talking a lot more in his inaugural lecture later this year about, uh, about discounting. Uh, so please March 19th. Put it in your diaries, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've had the Green Book, the, uh, the Treasury Green Book, mentioned uh, a couple of, of times. And so we're very fortunate to have with us tonight Joseph Lowe, who uh, is uh, a leading figure uh, in the uh, compilation of the, of the Green Book. So, Joseph, can I hand over to you? Yes, good evening. Um, it's funny, a colleague at work said to me, I've seen this thing in your diary. What are you going to that for? And I said, well, I, I think it's important. I think it'll be fun. He said, you must have a very sad life. <laughs> but, but then looking at all you, I think, well, you can't all have sad lives. Perhaps my life isn't so bad after all. I don't know. Um, look, the, this is hugely important, and it's nice to see the poo tube on the front there. I mean, sorry, that was the affectionate name it got in certain quarters of the Treasury when we are reviewing it, the super sewer. Because actually, the first thing to notice about that is there's a range of values. Yeah, we don't do one-number answers, because CBA is not an exact science, is it? Or if you think it is, um, go and talk to the doctor. Because it just cannot be. The uncertainties are too big. Um, And yet, the expectations, the way it's presented, and everything else seem to behave as if it were a simple one-number answer. And the stuff Ben's just been talking about... um, The Stern Review, the superb example of a mega difficult but highly important problem uh, and one which is at the root of the UK sort of climate change policy now, had to deal with all these huge problems of uncertainty, of definition, of scoping and so on. And um, the whole point about this abatement cost approach is, yes, it's highly uncertain, but if you try and do the damage cost, it's even more uncertain And actually, to get to the abatement cost approach, you have to make a series of assumptions about what other countries will do. This involves assuming that they will stick to the climate change agreements or something even better, and you'll get to 2% by a set date, which currently they're not doing. Um, So, you know, there are all kinds of issues. And yet, it's of immense value. Because what does it do? It, It tells us, look, even given all these difficulties... And stacking it up in this way and doing all the analysis that that superb review did with all the Monte Carlo simulations and everything else they did to try and cover uncertainty, it says, look, this is the potential issue here. This is a range of costs you could face. And actually putting it right, if we all did it together, would cost only this much. And that surely is the social function of doing this. It's to bring it into the public arena where these things can be if you have a mature level of public debate. And I know that's a big ask, um, having a mature level of public debate. But if you can have that, then it enables them to be dealt with and and judgments to be made. Um, And actually, 
The point about CBA that I'm often reminding people of, that back in the 60s when I, when I was a student, there was a very disreputable Harvard a mathematician called Tom Lehrer who, who, who sang politically highly incorrect songs that wouldn't get past the censor today, which were lampooning American values and, and, and the mores of his society in one way or another. And in fact, some of them make my stomach turn, and that's a pretty strong stomach. Um, but he said, you know, life is like a sewer. What you get out of it depends on what you put into it. And CBA is much the same. What you get out of it does depend on what you put into it. And the framing of CBA is crucial. Framing? The questions you ask it to look at and the way you look at them. Because it's one of those things, garbage in, garbage out, and yet it's hugely important. And intuitively, a very obvious thing, all the social costs, all the social benefits, look at the difference. Hard to argue with that. And yet doing it, requires a, quite a level of understanding. Now, the Green Book was reissued in, in, in March this year, and I am guilty of probably 90% plus of it. Um, it went through other hands after it left me, and, and there were lots of arguments that I had with, with those other hands, and, and I, it's still about 90 to 95% of what I wanted it to be, um, perhaps a little less clear in some places. So I can't escape guilt if it's wrong, uh, uh, that's for sure. But the basic approach is the same as the 2003, but it's a lot clearer and it incorporates a lot of learning that's happened since, including all the stuff on climate change. Now, there's things to notice. Um, ben was talking about some of the things that happen and, and, and also we were listening earlier to some of the things that happen when big corporations don't like the outcome. And you've got to remember what J.K. Galbraith once said, it, it's amazing uh, what people are prepared to believe if they think their salary depends upon it. Um, and, and, you know, uh, as so often with Galbraith, very pithy and to the point. Um, but the point is, the thing about this analysis is to, is to push through all that and with all the difficulties make it clear. Now, we do have a declining discount rate in the Green Book. We had it before, we have it now. But it doesn't go up to 300 years anymore. It truncates at year 125. Why? Because after 125, the amount you're adding starts to become vanishingly small. Is it that we don't care about intergenerational transfer? No, it's not. We're dealing with it another way. We're saying, if you've got something that is a genuine, significant intergenerational transfer, particularly if it's virtually irreversible or hugely expensive, then... Why don't you just have a look at the discounted cost of the first 30 years of that, average it, and say to the decision maker, oh, by the way, uh, this option uh, based on the discounted cost over the first 30 years averaged is X per year, and um, the burden on future generations will carry on for X thousand years. If you're happy with that, fine. If you're not, if you think that's acceptable, okay. Because it's about making transparent to the political policy space information on the long-term implications rather than adding vanishingly small amounts of value into a sum that will swamp them anyway. So we have, if you like, uh, the brief to help power understand the difficult world it's playing with as opposed to the extremely valuable role that people in academia have, which is to... Um, explore possibilities for this or that technique, answering perhaps one big question like do we need a Thames Tideway Tunnel or what is the potential cost and, and cost of dealing with uh, climate change. That's up at the policy level. Now, 
lower down at the implementation level, we need stuff like the, um, uh, the social cost of carbon. And that's covered in the Green Book. It's there. We have a social cost of carbon that uses this abatement cost method to get there and an assumption, probably flawed, of reaching a 2% uh, level by a particular set date in the future. But nevertheless, it's there for debate and for people to see and so that people across the country, if they are in fact doing something which causes greenhouse gas emissions, have a value they can build in. Because if we make appraisal too expensive for people to do, they won't do it, especially when they're doing small projects. But the sum of many small projects is very large. So we're about being roughly right, as Keynes said, not precisely wrong. It's not an exact science. So if you like, the difference between academic CBA and practical CBA is in the context and the setting. But that doesn't mean that we don't depend upon and highly value the approaches taken in academia. For example... We don't have risk in our discount rate. Sharp intake of breath. But we do explicitly price risk in to the cost of any proposal. Proposal-specific risks are costed in on a likelihood basis. The point of that is to try to get people to recognise what the risks are and to allow for a little thing called optimism bias, which is alive and well and flourishing in every country of the world. And to try to identify the risks, place them where they can be managed and put in policies to manage them and put down the cost of that so that we can tell the difference between one option for managing a proposal and another option. So it's a different ball game. It's a bit more approximate, a bit less pure, but it's very, very useful if you're trying to inform policy or decision-making, which is the world we live in. But to be able to do that, we depend on this other world which has got people like colleagues here and Gollier and Weitzman and all the people who are interested in this stuff. So have a look at the new Green Book. Um, it's not perfect. It'll be updated later this year to take in the latest values for all kinds of things that people use, ranging from climate change values to things like um, things local authorities can use for, for, for pricing in social problem family issues and things like that where they want to look at different approaches to managing the social issues of the day, equally important to the people who suffer from them. Thank you. Hello. Um, I'm really excited to be here tonight because I think the last time I was in this room was three years ago and I just graduated from um, the environmental economics masters and I was here drinking champagne and uh, just being happy that I done my masters and um, then afterwards I joined the government economic service and I had different roles so I was at DEFRA the committee on climate change and currently I'm at BASE the department for energy um, so when Ben asked me to present here he basically said could you just share with the audience, some of, some of the examples you worked on um, that were kind of relevant to, to the topic of this presentation. And to be honest, I think everything that has been mentioned so far, I have used in the last three years. So I've pondered over which valuation method is best to use to um, value the ecosystem services that our coast provide. When I was at DEFRA, I'm thinking about natural capital. I used the uh, government 
carbon values to advise the Welsh Government on their carbon budgets. But one example I always really enjoyed, because it's quite practical and you can actually go home and try it out yourself, and um, this is called the Outdoor Recreation Valuation Tool, or short Orwell. Um, so this tool, I used to project manage this two or three years ago, and it has been substantially improved, and I already saw a colleague of mine in the audience who can probably tell me about, more about the new features of this tool. So I don't claim to be an expert on this, but I think it's pretty awesome. So basically what Orville does, it is a map-based tool. So it looks like Google Maps. You click on a park or a path or a beach, and it shows you the value that people... Um, get from visiting this park, path or beach in terms of recreational value. And it also estimates how many visits this recreational space generates per year. Um, it is based on travel cost methods, roughly, or to put simply. Um, behind this is a very, very, very complicated and complex uh, statistical model uh, recreation demand model developed by Professor Brett Day, the University of Exeter. So this is developed by the University of Exeter and was funded by DEFRA. Um, so this is quite a state-of-the-art kind of model behind this. But in essence, it's really a nice visual tool for people to connect with the kind of value that the environment gives them. And I thought I'd show you how this looks like in practice. The nice thing is you can just put in your postcode and it tells you and it zooms into wherever you live. So I just used somewhere where I live. So this is North London, uh, Herringay, Priory Park. It's quite a small park, four hectares, typical kind of local community. People walk their dogs. There's a playground. And the tool is best for these kind of parks that don't necessarily have some kind of... Um, cultural value attached to them. So uh, St. James's Park has loads of tourists coming in and the model doesn't really account for them. But um, this is a very good example for what the model does. And as you can see, so the, the model has three functions. Um, you can see them on the, on the right-hand side. You can explore a side. This is what I've, I'm doing here. I clicked on the park and then it tells me, okay, this park... Roughly every year, it generates £300,000 in terms of welfare value to the community. And it estimates that roughly um, over 100,000 people visit, visit the park every year. Um, 100,000 visits, sorry, not 100,000 people in total, 100,000 visits. And then the second function is you can also alter the characteristics of, of any site you select. Um, so you can play around with it a bit. For example, I just doubled the size of the park and it turned out that it increased the value by roughly £100,000 and generated roughly 50,000 more visits to it. And maybe you don't have the space to double the size of your park, but that doesn't matter. We can actually also increase the value by... Um, adding some more formal gardens so you can actually change the land cover of uh, any site you select and I, I decreased the managed grassland, added some formal gardens to it and suddenly £130,000 
increased value and 60,000 more visits. Um, also, it can go down. So I, I removed the playground, and that was a really bad idea. But it was like £170,000 less and actually 76,000 less visits. So I feel like these results are quite intuitive. And it's actually great that we can express them in such an easy, accessible way. So this can be used by the general public, by local authorities, for anyone who wants to do something with this. And there are loads more functions, so please go and visit the, the website. You can select multiple sites. You can select them by local authority, by catchment area, even by like have value maps so they can see which areas have the most value. There's a lot that this tool can do, and yeah, it's quite exciting. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Tanya. It's uh, great to have you back. We're drinking water down the front here rather than champagne uh, this evening, uh, however, but it's uh, fantastic to, uh, to, to hear about how uh, some of these ideas are, are, are actually used. Uh, so thank you uh, to, the, uh, to the panel uh, for your uh, presentations. Uh, we now open the, the floor up uh, to, uh, to questions uh, from, the, uh, from the audience. Um, so Questions um, can be maybe on some of the specific aspects of the uh, the presentations or any general discussion points that you want to uh, to raise. Uh, we have our stewards with uh, roving microphones uh, who will come to you. So, uh, can you please give your name and affiliation and uh, wait for the stewards uh, to uh, to approach? So perhaps we could collect a couple of questions at a at a time uh, and then ask our our panel for uh, for any of their their thoughts. So, who would like to? ask a question or make a, make a point. So we have... So at the beginning you talked about... Oh, sorry. My name's John. I don't have an affiliation. <laughs> but at the beginning you talked about ex-post and ex-ante um, evaluations, and then you talked about a bunch of methods that, you know, it's unclear which ones are the best ones to use necessarily. Has work been done to actually backtest and try and figure out, looking at historical examples, what would have been the best method to use in those cases? Okay, thank you. Is there another question? Yes. That is, oh, and, well, it was there, and then we can come down to, to here. Or... Hi, I am Sanchayan. I am doing my PhD in environmental econ at the LSE right now. Uh, my first question would be, uh, like, all this is very relevant in the OECD and all the developed countries right now, but then looking at the country that I come from, India, it's a growing economy, but then it's largely informal and has a big underground economy with no like formal rules of CBA. So what would be the future scope of CBA in a country like that? Uh, the second question would be that CBA is it's, uh, based on like a consequentialist theory or something like on allocative efficiency. So what is like if you're looking at some other rights-based system or, or something that is more multidimensional like Amartya Sen's method of, like, would that be possible? What's the scope for that in the future? Okay. Thank you. Perhaps we could just collect the question that was down here. Hi, Stephen Smith from University College London. Um, Nils Axel mentioned or raised the rather limited amount of experience with ex post evaluation of, of policies so um, there's kind of a lot of ex-ante study of the costs and benefits of potential measures 
and then very little retrospective assessment of whether they delivered um, what was promised. And I wondered, it, it's a question that intrigues me, and you can think of obvious sort of political reasons why this wouldn't be terribly common. There's a huge amount of embarrassment in admitting that you've wasted vast amounts of money on uh, things that didn't deliver um, the benefits that were, that were promised. But I guess there's also a question of how rapidly information accumulates. And I wondered how quickly, in general, the methods that we can use for policy assessment actually are capable of telling us things about ex post experience. Kind of many of the things that we do, I suspect we would use the same values ex ante and ex post, but I suspect it's some of the kind of behavioral things that matter, uh, or where you may learn things quite quickly. But I'd be interested in your views about that. Okay, so um, we have a, a quite a few uh, different. Uh, so we'll, we'll maybe just some address some questions, and then we'll we'll, we'll come back uh, to uh, to those of you who still want to to ask uh, ask some more. Um, so perhaps we deal firstly with which value, which methods are best. Does anyone uh, have a panel have any thoughts on which methods methods are are best? Uh, I don't mind cooking off on that mm -hmm. one. Uh, it's, it depends, is the answer That's good. to that. Okay. Yeah. Next. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, there are arguments on both sides. I mean, so the typical position in, in sort of amongst economists is that there's no better measure than revealed preference um, because you're actually looking at observed behavior. But as Susanna sort of mentioned before, you know, that's not necessarily... Um, that's not always the best thing. So here's an example. When, when we come to value the value of statistical life, I think the, the literature typically loves to focus on uh, employment and risk and employment and wages and, 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 and sort of elicits a value from those kind of trade-offs that people actually make when they make their uh, employment decisions. But then, of course, when people choose a job, they're choosing a job for many, many different reasons, not just the risk factor, right? And uh, the results on such um, analyses are fairly stable, and they seem to make a lot of sense. But it's not exactly clear that it's just the, that you're eliciting risk, uh, prefer, um, uh, sort of their uh, trading off of risk, or something else, right? So the thing with stated preference, then, where you ask hypothetical questions... Um, is that you can really, really fashion the question to the thing that you want to get an answer for. But then, of course, you end up with uh, some of the biases that Susanna was talking about as well, which you have to try and measure. So that's where the it depends um, uh, answer comes from. You have to be very... There's a trade-off between these methods, I'd say. Uh, plus, I would add also, uh, the data uh, is, you know, in, in the employment data is spectacular in, in some developed countries. So there's another reason for sort of perhaps focusing in on those those methods. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you, Ben. Susanna, did you yeah, want I mean, to add I, anything? I would just add to that, that there, there is no best method. There, that, it's not a question that is answerable, uh, as, as, as Ben said. It depends what you want to measure, and it depends what information you have available, and then you have to make a decision what is the best method to use, and sometimes you use the methods in combination. More and more we use revealed and stated preference methods in combination uh, to try to get the best the best results. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's more complex than that. One has to uh, analyze the situation, see what data is available, and then make a decision. 
If you want uh, non-use values, you have to use state of preference methods. If you want use values, then you can use them in combination or one over the other, depending on, 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 on what you want. And just to go to the question uh, Sanchayan asked about uh, India, uh, I would just say that um, state um, uh, non-market valuation methods have been used extensively in other countries and they're not just uh, in um, Western economies, they've been used in uh, developing countries for example quite successfully and, and sometimes you use them to um, analyze particular specific micro investments where you want to know what the costs and benefits are before the funders put in the money to, 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 to sponsor those investments. And so you need to know what the costs are, what the benefits are, and if people are willing to pay for those, for those types of, of investments. So it is, uh, those particular methods are widely applicable in other countries as well. You, of course, have to take into account the institutional setting in which we operate. And uh, if people, if there are no taxes, then you cannot use taxes as a payment mechanism. Um, if people free ride, you need to account for that in the methods that you use. So as long as you know what the institutional setup is, um, it is important to, that you can use the methods with that in mind. Um, but that's at the micro level. Clearly, if you do not have institutions to apply this at the macro level, then that's a, a, a different story. But you can certainly apply them at the project level. And Niels Axel, yes, because I know some, a lot of your OECD work that also touches on cross-country implementation. And Indeed. Um, and by the way, the relevance for a country like, like India, um, well, one of the authors we are using the most is actually of Indian origin. Um, but uh, when Chile joined the OECD approximately 10 years ago or so. Chile was not at all uh, at the same income level as, as many of the other OECD countries. But the uh, president of, of Chile at that time, uh, Madame Bachelet, uh, emphasized that uh, OECD is not a rich man's club. It's a club of best practices. Um, I'm not sure I would make the claim that all OECD countries always uh, use the best practices, but at least we, we, we try uh, to encourage what we think are the best practices. Um, and, and that is relevant more or less regardless of income levels. Uh, to Stephen uh, Smith's question about why there are so, so few ex post analysis uh, there, there are certainly a variety of reasons for it um, but uh, politicians are perhaps not always very keen to have uh, some researcher finding out that uh, a policy they have been campaigning harder to, to, to get in place actually turned out to be uh, welfare reducing so there can be some hesitation from, from, from that aspect. Unless, of course, they can uh, commission an assessment of a policy that their predecessors uh, had put in place, then perhaps they could be more, more willing to do so. Um, there are, when certain policies are in place and firms have adopted and people have adopted to them, uh, there can be some resistance to change back um, among incumbents. 
So they, they sort of have their investments paid on, uh, based on a new policy. They don't want to, to see those investments become unprofitable because you, you question uh, a policy later on. Um, how rapid can we get data? Uh, that's always uh, a big issue, but I mentioned we had uh, recently done for us uh, a case study of the reforms of motor vehicle taxes in in um, Ireland. These reforms started in 2008, and and uh, uh, the researchers managed to get a, a large amount of data uh, so that they can by comparing developments in Ireland to developments in the UK. They could do a differences in differences uh, analysis. And to me, it seems that they have come up with, with uh, really quite robust uh, findings. And they could have done it a, f a few years earlier and still have pretty robust uh, findings, I think. So you don't need to wait an awful long time. Uh, sometimes... Uh, I mean, there was a dramatic shift in the share of uh, diesel vehicles in Ireland compared to what was happening in the UK just in an, a, a matter of a few months. Okay, thank you. Um, we had a, a, there was also a, a tricky question about consequentialism and CBA. I'm not going to ask our academic panelists this, because we typically say, well, CBA is just one input to the decision, and then we walk away hoping that's enough of an answer. But I just wonder, with our policy world uh, panelists, uh, actually, what does that one input mean in practice? So for you, actually, thinking about and using C CBA, uh, Tanya or, or Joseph, sorry to put you on the spot, uh, are you talking about sort of unintended consequences or collateral damage? I think it was more based on, well, uh, how I interpret it was, was we're just looking at outcomes. You know, what about duties, obligations, and uh, other, other desirable uh, out things to do with what we would like from policy actions? Uh, Rights based approaches. Yeah. Okay, well, look, the, the point about the, the, the Green Book is that it, it doesn't just talk about CBA. Hmm. So it's got loads of stuff in it about all that preparatory work that I was alluding to to make sure you get sensible questions fed into CBA so that you can get some sensible answers out of it, sensible options. And part of the framing of CBA considers um, that kind of thing and the specific requirement to consider constraints that you must work within, constraints of, the, of, of morality, ethics, uh, the law, of public acceptability, the issues of the day, and all that kind of thing. And also the dependencies that you have the infrastructure that you need that is beyond your control and is not part of the proposal but has to be there if your proposal is going to work. There's a whole range of other stuff which, you, which is in the Green Book about process and things like that. Um, and actually, there is something now in the Green Book about ex post evaluation. There always was. There was a little whisper in a foot, footnote. But now it says in your face in the first couple of pages, every proposal to use public resources should contain a proportionate budget and management provision for monitoring and evaluation of this proposal during and after its implementation. Um, that is not, it's not the Lone Ranger, it's not a magic bullet, but it's a beginning. It's a fulcrum that then levers can be rested against 
and pull to try and get that done. Why is it not done? Well, look, people go into areas to make decisions about public policy because they want to make a change or for one reason or another. That's the best motivation in the way. There are others too, of course. And what's at the top of people's minds is always the issues of the day and the next big thing and how they're going to get their point across. And they care very little about did my predecessor but two or three have something in that didn't work. And so they don't go out of their way to make provision, either in money or other resource, to, to have that looked at. Um, by building this in, I, I was hoping that uh, because it's in the public domain, and all this is in the public domain, it's completely transparent, and people would, if it wasn't done, ask questions. And, and dare I say, even the PAC would be aware of it. That's the Parliamentary Council meeting. Um, and, and, and everybody wants to uh, not be torn to pieces by the PAC for not doing their job properly. And this makes absolutely clear that the responsible use of public resources is to look at how well you're doing it and how well you did it and did it have the effect. Because all we ever change is service outputs. We're the public service. We're not omnipotent, we're not the public asset ownership corporation, we're here to deliver service and everything we do should be viewed in terms of what service are we delivering, what outcomes then happen as a result of that change in service and is that a net beneficial or a net cost effect and understanding that causal chain, you can only enrich that if you have the right research and part of that is ex post evaluation and there is not enough of it done and I want to see more of it done. Okay. So at least having it in the Green Book will help. Mm -hmm. Read the first four chapters of the Green Book. In fact, read, to read the Green Book, you don't need to read 150 pages. It's an encyclopedia, right? And there's a load of annexes which make up between a third and a half of it. Read the first half. It's in fairly plain English. Um, the chapter on valuation may get a bit specialised, but not that much won't challenge people in this room, they'll understand it easily. And then if you're into the annexes, you can jump into those um, as well. Okay, thank you very much. Got your reading instructions. I just move to, uh, to, to Tanya, and then we will come back to you for, for some more questions. So thank you for your patience. Tanya, thank you. I think from, from speaking from practice is that sometimes we might not be able to actually put a monetary value on something, and we don't have to. Um, when I do a CBA in practice, I, the first step is really to identify all the impacts, whether or not I then in the end can actually quantify them in monetary terms. And if you look at impact assessments that are published, not everything is actually expressed in monetary terms. There's loads of information that is just expressed in qualitative terms, and that is fine. qualitative terms. That's completely fine. That's actually really important, and we shouldn't discount those, because just because... If we focus too much on this monetization question, then we, there's this bias that we focus too much on the things that we can do and discount the stuff we can't do. So um, I don't think this is happening. And I, I personally always value the, the things that we can or can't at the moment value and would mention that in an impact assessment. So I think CBA doesn't necessarily mean monetization. Well, if you quickly, yeah, thank you. That, that there is a Green Book method for dealing with decisively important unmonetizable issues. And that is to put forward an option that takes account of the issues and one that does not. Because taking account of them will cause costs. And by comparing those two options, 
you can see the cost of doing the thing that meets that unmonetizable objective. And you can say to the decision maker, by the way, here is this objective. Uh, the cost of meeting it, not meeting it, is this. Are you happy with making that cost? We don't actually know what it's worth, but this is this a price you're prepared to pay? Because we're trying to simplify for the decision maker all the uncertainties and the values. And that gives them a piece of information which is valuable. And they might think, yes, I'm prepared to pay that. It's all right. Or, well, actually, that costs a lot more than I thought. Perhaps we'll leave it for another day. Okay, thank you very much. Let's, let's open the floor back up. Um, just a question at the front here, and we will come back to over, over here. Hi, hello. Hi, thanks. I'm Tanya from Middlesex University. Um, so a lot of work can go into CBA, but really in the end what comes out of it is a value or a range of values. And I think my concern is that this doesn't take into account distributional issues. So whose values are we talking about? And that, I think, is the big weakness of CBA. So how can we reframe CBA output so that the distribution is, is key? It's, it's the center. Okay, thank you. Um, another question? There was one over, I think, over on this, this side. So, you, Yes, okay, please, yeah. Hello, my name is Peter Dunsby. I run my own company working to reduce CO2 emissions in the UK. Um, mine is a, more of a practical question. Two of the big trends that I feel that we have to look at in the UK are electrifying transport and electrifying heat. Um, my question relates to heat. Many, many homes use a gas boiler to, to de deliver that heat. Um, in an ideal world, we would move rapidly towards using heat pumps um, that rely on electricity to heat a house as efficiently as possible. Um, very difficult currently looking at the relative prices of, of gas and electricity, roughly 3.5 pence per unit of gas, 14 pence per unit of electricity. What that means in practice is that even the most efficient heat pump can't compete on price versus a fossil fuel gas boiler. Um, whether that's an academic question or a policy question, I'll, I'll leave for yourselves. Um, finally, very interesting evening. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, one, more, one more question. So there's one at the, at the back uh, there. So thank you. My apologies if we didn't get to your question. Yeah. Uh, hi, hello. Uh, my name is Julia. I'm from Brazil. And um, uh, like, I just want to make a question uh, due to our uh, current scenario with the new elected president. We know that uh, the Amazon rainforest is in a big danger. Uh, so I would ask you, because like, um, the economic point of view of the forest is that uh, the agriculture values much more than the forest, right? So uh, my question is, how could we um, like make a valuation of the forest? Like, Which aspects from the, the forest that we could take into consideration to, to make the valuation of the forest that can show that the forest has much more value than the same, uh, if you take the same area and uh, transform the area into just agriculture production? Okay, thank you. Um, what was our, our panel, um, what you might have to say about distributional issues or any of these? Uh, Good question. Uh, I, I quite agree, the importance of distributional issues, because that's one of the functions of welfare economics, is to say who wins and who loses, apart from is there a total win or total loss. And, and, and the way we try to deal with it in practice in the Green Book 
is to say, okay, we no longer want to bury distribution issues in the total because they can get lost. We now have a statutory duty to consider 11 uh, designated uh, uh, categories of, of people that are in, in the Equalities Act, plus the family, which is in the Families Act, and any other group. There's a legal requirement now for public officials to uh, look at the effect that they will have on, on these minority groups of one kind or another. And there should be a duty anyway to consider any minority that is affected. But very often, that effect, if you put it into the total analysis, will just get buried, which means that it's not visible at all. So the Green Book line on this now is that you do a distribution analysis as a parallel analysis to your UK um, analysis. And also, interestingly enough, you can do a species of distribution analysis for things that are to do with sub-national issues. They might be a devolved uh, nationality, they might be a region, they might be a city, it could be rural areas, it could be areas of urban deprivation, anything you can get stats for and define, because you might be concerned with giving advice on those things. And very often the UK framework, as practically defined in the Green Book, isn't very good for those kind of things. It doesn't let you count all sorts of things you'd like to count, for very logical reasons, but it doesn't. It looks counterintuitive at first. But in the regional or the local distribution analysis, some of them are allowed so that we can give proper weight to them. And it's just a matter that the poor old overtaxed decision maker has um, a bit more than uh, two, two numbers to look at. They might have half a dozen. But the, the point is we're making clear to them what the distribution effects are and who they might fall on. Maybe even saying, are you happy with this or do you want to pursue this other option that offsets them or something like that. So that's broadly how we do it. Okay, thank you. Ben? So like, the typical kind of economic response to that is that um, in the long run, you know, well, we're all dead. <laughs> no, not that. Um, in the long run, you know, you've got a bunch of different projects, and so the distributional issues just, just kind of sort themselves out, you know, over, over the portfolio of projects that you have. And secondly, that if you're really concerned about redistribution, most projects aren't that good at redistributing things. So, so you, if you're really concerned about the distributional issues, you should go for you know, progressive taxation, and, and those are the things you should be fighting for. However, the legitimacy of, of many projects, I think, depends on the distribution of those outcomes. And you could have many projects which don't pass a kind of cost-benefit analysis test which would be justifiable, I think, on distributional grounds because they, they improve the, the lot of you know, disadvantaged people, poor people, and, and the people who are paying the cost are, are richer, right? So I think, and that is why most cost-benefit guidelines, Joseph's just told us about the UK, uh, the, U, the US, um, Obama's executive order, which hasn't been repealed by Trump, uh, specifically says that cost-benefit analysis should have a distributional analysis as well on top of it. The French, I think, have even they tend to legislate for stuff like this. They've certainly legislated that cost-benefit analysis has to take place and post, um, an ex-post analysis has to take place as well. And they, they are very strong on the distributional side as well. So I think, I think the thrust of the question is correct, that the, this information should always be available and easily understood to people who are evaluating, for instance, HS2 or whatever it might be. Thank you. Um, Niels Axel, do you want to say something uh, on this? Okay. We can just uh, do some PR for uh, 
chapter 11 in this book, written, <laughs> written by a certain chair of this meeting. Um, and uh, to the man down here who asked about uh, electrifying heat provision, uh, a proper carbon tax uh, could, of course, uh, contribute in that, uh, to addressing that issue. Thank you. Okay. Um, we're running out of time, and I thought we were going to have a question uh, from Brazil about CBA in an age of populism, but it was actually an easier question of uh, how to value the Amazon. So we need, a, <laughs> we need an Orwell for the uh, Amazon, uh, it seems, and how, how far or close might we be to, to that? Susanna, Tanya, yeah, did mean, you want I, to? I suppose the, um, we know how to value forests, um, and uh, a lot of the, 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 the values of forests are non-market in nature. So you have the, the, the carbon, uh, that is embodied in the forest, that has a value. You have the recreational and amenity value of forests, and then uh, you have the biodiversity uh, elements of uh, species that leave, uh, live in the forest. And um, you have also non-use values if it's a, a, an iconic forest. So it all depends on what, what forest it is. If it's the Amazon and it has unique species and iconic values, um, then you probably are thinking of large values um, using these methods that I mentioned. But if you're talking about just the, the forests that are not particularly special spread out through the country, the main value seems to be recreation, according to, to the literature. So if, if, if pieces of woodland are near big uh, urban centers, they have a large value because people go there for recreation. If, are, if they are in areas that no one uses and no one visits, the values are much lower. And of course, this um, helps us decide where, to, where forests should be uh, uh, located in the most efficient way. Um, and in fact, some of our colleagues uh, um, have done this. They looked at forests in Wales and where the forest should be located in Wales and where it has more value. And the most value is near urban centers because of recreation. So for the, your standard run-of-the-mill forest, I think the recreational values are absolutely essential. If you're thinking about forests that are quite unique, then it's completely different. And you have to assess the non-use values, the biodiversity, the uniqueness of those forests. We have the, 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 the ability to value these things. It's just a question of of conducting the studies. Uh, I'll come to Tanya, uh, if that's okay. Uh, maybe just one point. Um, as you say, Susan, I think we know how to do it, and there are lots of values out there. I think there's also a question of how we communicate these values and to, to policymakers, to, to whoever who might actually be coming from a more sceptical background. And I think the UK is quite uh, at the forefront of this thing called natural capital, and it actually helps to frame this concept, which is actually quite an old concept, in a language that might be more accessible to people that come from a more business background. Um, this idea that nature provides services and goods and that this can be, this is a capital that we should value just as we value financial and human capital. And I think it has been quite successful. I mean, I'm sure Giles would agree with that. And, and yeah, just as an idea to put out there. Okay, thank you. Uh, I think because we're at 8 o'clock now, we need to uh, draw matters uh, to a close. So just let me say as closing remarks, it's, uh, well, for me, it's been a great pleasure to have this opportunity to listen to the panel. Uh, I'd like to, uh, to thank the panel again uh, very much, and thank you all for your uh, visit and your uh, participation. So very um, happy that so many of you uh, found uh, time in your, your schedules to, uh, to spend the, uh, the evening with us. So if we could just uh, uh, thank our panel for one last time. Uh, thank you very much.